Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for January 17, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page today, in bold headline from the war in the Middle East, attacks fuel worries of broader war. A barrage of U.S. coalition and militant attacks in the Middle East over the last five days are compounding U.S. fears that Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza could expand as massive military strikes failed to stall the assault on Red Sea shipping by Yemen-based Houthis. Even as the U.S. and allies pummeled more than two dozen Iran-backed Houthi locations on Friday in retaliation for attacks on ships, the Houthis have continued their maritime assaults. Tehran struck sites in Iraq and Syria, claiming to target an Israeli spy headquarters, then followed that Tuesday with reported missile and drone attacks in Pakistan. The chaotic wave of attacks and reprisals involving the United States, its allies, and foes suggested not only that last week's assault failed to deter the Houthis, but that the broader regional war that the U.S. has spent months trying to avoid was becoming closer to reality. Underscoring the gravity of the roiling situation, the Biden administration was expected to announce plans to redesignate the Houthis as global terrorists, according to people familiar with the decision who requested anonymity. At the White House Tuesday, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. is not looking for a war. We're not looking to expand this. The Houthis have a choice to make. But in a speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned that the expanding array of attacks means that allies must be vigilant against the possibility that, in fact, rather than heading towards de-escalation, we are on a path of escalation that we have to manage. Ever since the devastating attack by Hamas on Israel on October 7 prompted a massive air and ground campaign by Israeli forces, the U.S. and other allies worried about about it expanding to a broader regional war. U.S. diplomatic and military officials have shuttled urgently across the Middle East, working to ease tensions, but the enormous Palestinian death toll has fueled anger and is being touted as a reason for at least some of the attacks. Since November, the Houthis have repeatedly targeted ships in the Red Sea, saying they were avenging Israel's offensive against Hamas but they have frequently targeted vessels with tenuous or no clear links to Israel, imperiling shipping in a key route for global trade. In rapid succession in recent days, the Houthis fired an anti-ship cruise missile toward a U.S. Navy destroyer over the weekend, but the ship shot it down. The Houthis then struck a U.S.-owned ship in the Gulf of Aden on Monday, and a Malta-flagged bulk carrier in the Red Sea on Tuesday. The attacks came despite the bombardment by U.S. and British ships and fighter jets of more than 60 Houthi targets 
in 28 locations on Friday. Though the U.S. said the subsequent Houthi maritime attacks have been smaller and not as complex as earlier ones, it appears the militant group has not been deterred. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has praised the group's actions. According to U.S. Central Command, the U.S. launched a new strike against the Houthis on Tuesday, hitting four anti-ship ballistic missiles that were prepared to launch and presented an imminent threat to merchant and U.S. Navy ships in the region. Hours later, the Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack on the Malta-flagged bulk carrier Zografia. The ship was hit, but no one was injured, and it continued on its way. The attack Monday on the U.S.-owned Gibraltar Eagle also resulted in damage but no injuries, and it, too, continued on its journey. The Houthis' military spokesman, Brigadier General Yaya Sari, said in a statement it fired at the Zografia after the ship's crew refused to answer warning calls and that the vessel was headed for a port in Israel. According to the shipping tracking website Vessel Finder, Zografia was bound for Suez, Egypt. While Iran arms and backs the Houthis, it's not been clear how much it helped plan or direct the attacks. Tehran launched its own assault on Israel's interests late Monday, firing missiles near the U.S. consulate in northern Iraq at what it said was a headquarters of Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. Four civilians were killed and six injured in the strike in Erbil, the seat of Iraq's semi-autonomous Kurdish region, according to the Security Council of the Kurdish Regional Government. Iran's Revolutionary Guards said in a statement it also fired ballistic missiles at terrorist operations, including Islamic State targets in Syria, and destroyed them. On Tuesday, Iran struck targets inside Pakistan, killing two innocent children and wounded three other people, the Pakistani government said. Iran described the targets as bases for the militant group Jaish al-Adl, state media reported. Jaish al-Adl, or the Army of Justice, is a Sunni militant group which largely operates across the border in Pakistan. Iran has fought the militants in border areas, but a missile and drone attack on nuclear-armed Pakistan would be unprecedented for Iran. Also on the front page, an article entitled Punishing Deep Freeze Continues to Grip U.S. Major cities on the East Coast broke a snow drought of sorts Tuesday, while other parts of the U.S. struggled with perilously low temperatures that closed schools, cut power, and likely contributed to deaths by cold exposure. New York City's Central Park recorded more than an inch of snow in a single day for the first time since 2022, the National Weather Service said, while Philadelphia's 715-day streak without a similar amount ended also. Slightly more than 100,000 U.S. homes and businesses 
were without power, most of them in Oregon, Texas, and Louisiana, after widespread outages that started last weekend. Portland General Electric warned that the threat of freezing rain could delay restoration efforts. Schools were closed for students in Portland and other major cities, including Chicago, Detroit, Denver, Dallas, Houston, Memphis, Tennessee, across New England, and in the Washington, D.C. region. Federal offices in and around the nation's capital were also closed as roughly two inches of snow hit the area. The storms and frigid temperatures affected everything from air travel to NFL playoff games to Iowa's presidential caucuses and were also the cause of several deaths. At least four people in the Portland area died, including two people from suspected hypothermia. Another man was killed after a tree fell on his house, and a woman died in a fire that spread from an open flame stove after a tree fell onto an RV. In Wisconsin, the deaths of three homeless people in the Milwaukee area were under investigation, with hypothermia the likely cause, officials said. A Kentucky State Police helicopter rescued four campers stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday, according to Powell County Search and Rescue, which said the call was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. The Asbury College students were in good spirits other than being cold, officials said. In Louisiana, state troopers worked all night to get motorists off bridges that had been iced over, stranding drivers on the spans on Interstate 10 between Baton Rouge and Lafayette and Interstate 210 close to Lake Charles, Louisiana State Police said. Freezing rain and sleet was expected to continue across portions of the southeast. Winter storm warnings were in effect for Lawrence, Limestone, and Madison counties in Alabama, and in Franklin County in Tennessee, southeast Arkansas, northeast Louisiana, and much of Mississippi. Moderate to heavy snowfall was expected into the Mid-Atlantic with winter weather advisories in effect from the Mid-Atlantic into New England, according to the National Weather Service. Another two to four inches of snow was expected in New York State, and six to eight inches of snow was expected in Upper New England through Wednesday. In the Pacific Northwest, ice storm warnings were in effect through Wednesday morning. In parts of the Cascades into the northern Rockies, 15 to 28 inches of snow was possible. Another day of record cold temperatures was expected across much of the Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest on Tuesday, with wind chills below minus 30 extending into the mid-Mississippi Valley. Frigid temperatures in the Northeast didn't stop fans from heading out to cheer on the Buffalo Bills at a snow-covered Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. The Bills beat the Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday in an AFC wildcard playoff game that was delayed a day because of a storm that dumped more than two feet of snow on the region. 
and voters handed former President Donald Trump a win Monday night in the coldest first-in-the-nation Iowa caucuses on record. Temperatures dipped to minus 3 degrees in Des Moines, with the wind chill making it feel far colder. Air travelers across the country experienced delays and cancellations. The flight tracking service, FlightAware, said more than 1,300 cancellations were already reported by Tuesday morning on the East Coast. Temperatures are expected to moderate midweek, but a new surge of colder air is forecast to drop south over the northern plains and Midwest, reaching the deep south by the end of the week. And now on page two, a story from the Associated Press entitled, Trump Wins Big in Iowa Race That Was Over Before It Began. In some ways, Iowa's Republican caucuses were practically over before they began, with Donald Trump cultivating a deep network of support over three presidential runs. About seven in ten Iowans who caucused for Trump on Monday night said they knew all along that they would support a man who has remade the Republican Party through his Make America Great Again political movement. Trump was carried to victory by the majority of caucus goers who say they back it, a sign of his growing influence in a state that denied him a victory eight years ago. His chief challengers, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, tried to carve out their own coalitions, but none could match the demographic edges enjoyed by Trump in this year's first presidential contest, according to the findings from AP VoteCast. Ramaswamy suspended his campaign after a disappointing finish in the caucuses. Trump performed strongly in small-town and rural communities, where about 6 in 10 caucus-goers said they live. He won with white evangelical Christians, who are nearly half of the caucus-goers. He excelled among those without a college degree. If there is a reason for pause in his Iowa success, it is that many of the must-win states in the November general election are more urban, more suburban, more racially diverse, and have slightly more college graduates as a percentage of their adult population than does Iowa. AP VoteCast is a survey of more than 1,500 voters who said they planned to take part in the caucuses. The survey is conducted by the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. How Trump Won in Iowa Trump, 77, entered Iowa as the caucus favorite. The demographics favored him, but so did the issues that people prioritized, immigration and the economy. Among the roughly 4 in 10 Iowa caucus goers who identified immigration as the most important issue for the nation, about 6 in 10 backed Trump. Those participating in the caucuses agreed with his hardline stance on finding ways to limit immigration. About 9 in 10 back building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, with about 7 in 10 expressing strong support for the idea first championed by Trump during his 2016 campaign.
The vast majority, about three-quarters, say immigrants hurt the United States, an indication there is a desire to reduce overall immigration levels. About one-third of caucus goers prioritize the economy. Of those who did, about half support Trump. DeSantis distant second. The key for DeSantis earning a second-place finish was conservatives who favored him over Haley, even though they liked Trump most of all. About seven in ten Iowans who caucused define themselves as conservatives. A majority of caucus goers favor a ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, and DeSantis performed slightly better than Haley among that group. Haley finished narrowly behind DeSantis. She was the top candidate of the most anti-Trump Republicans in the state, including those who believe the former president did something illegal in one of the pending criminal cases against him. She was also the top choice for those Republican caucus goers who voted for Biden in the 2020 election. But she faced headwinds in a state that largely saw itself as loyal to Trump and his agenda. DeSantis performs best among the caucus goers dissatisfied with Trump, but who said they would ultimately vote for him in the general election. Most Iowa caucus goers, for either Haley or DeSantis, say they would be dissatisfied with Trump as their party's nominee. But unlike DeSantis backers, two-thirds of Haley's caucus goers say they would not ultimately vote for Trump in the general election. Potential weaknesses for Trump Iowa also exposed some national vulnerabilities for Trump, who lost his 2020 re-election bid to Democrat Joe Biden. The suburbs are a relative weakness for Trump. That's a key challenge because AP VoteCast showed almost half of voters in the 2020 general election said they lived in the suburbs. Only about one-third of Iowa Republicans in the suburbs rep- supported him. Still, neither of his closest rivals bested Trump in the suburbs. About three in ten Iowa caucus goers in the suburbs also supported both Haley and DeSantis, respectively. Nor does Trump have as much appeal with college graduates. About 2 in 10 of Trump's Iowa backers hold a college degree, compared with about half of those who back DeSantis, and slightly more than that for Haley. And there are Trump's legal troubles. He was indicted multiple times in 2023 and faces the risk of one or more criminal convictions. But that appears, so far, to have done little damage to his standing with Republican voters. Still, about one quarter say Trump did something illegal when it comes to at least one of the legal cases he is facing. His role in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol, his alleged attempts to interfere in the vote count in the 2020 presidential election, or the discovery of classified documents at his Florida home that were supposed to be in government custody. By the numbers, AP VoteCast is a survey of the American electorate conducted by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs research for AP and Fox News. The survey of 1,597 voters was conducted for eight days, concluding as the caucuses begin. 
Interviews were conducted in English and Spanish. The survey combines a random sample of registered voters drawn from state voter files and self-identified registered voters selected from non-probability online panels. The margin of sampling error for voters is estimated to be plus or minus 3.4 percentage points. In national and world news, we have an article entitled Tax Break Plan Unveiled. Bipartisan deal would enhance child credit, give business rebates. The chairman of the top tax policy committees in Congress announced a bipartisan agreement Tuesday to enhance the child tax credit and revive a variety of tax breaks for businesses, a combination designed to attract support from lawmakers of both political parties. The roughly $78 billion in tax cuts would be offset by more quickly ending a tax break Congress approved during the COVID-19 pandemic that encouraged businesses to keep employees on their payroll. The agreement was announced by Senator Ron Wyden, the Democratic Chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and Representative Jason Smith, the Republican Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. The lawmakers have been negotiating for months on a tax package that would address an array of priorities before lawmakers turn their focus to election season. Wyden said his goal is to gain approval of the measure in time for businesses and families to benefit during the upcoming filing season. The Internal Revenue Service will begin accepting and processing tax returns January 29 so lawmakers are looking to move the bill as quickly as possible. Meeting that goal may prove difficult, as lawmakers are already racing to finish their spending bills and are considering a bill focused on aid to Israel and Ukraine and stemming the flow of migrant migrants entering the country at the U.S.-Mexico border. One option would be for the leaders in the House and Senate to attach the measure to one of those top priority bills. In forging the agreement, Democratic negotiators focused on boosting the child tax credit. The tax credit is $2,000 per child, but only $1,600 is refundable, which makes it available to parents who owe little to nothing in federal income taxes. The bill would incrementally increase the maximum refundable child tax credit to $1,800 for 2023 tax returns, $1,900 for the following year, and $2,000 for 2025 tax returns. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a liberal think tank and advocacy group, projected about 16 million children in low-income families would benefit from the child tax credit expansion. Given today's miserable political climate, it is a big deal to have this opportunity to pass pro-family policy that helps so many kids get ahead, Wyden said in a statement announcing the deal. Republicans focused on tax breaks for businesses they said would help grow the economy. The tax breaks in the bill would generally align their expiration date, the end of 2025, with many of the other tax cuts that were approved in 2017. 
Continuing in national and world news, we have an article entitled Israel Fights Militants in North. Qatar says it mediated a deal to get medical aid to hostages in Gaza. Palestinian militants battled Israeli forces in devastated northern Gaza and launched a barrage of rockets from farther south on Tuesday in a show of force more than 100 days into Israel's massive air and ground campaign against the tiny coastal enclave. The fighting in the north, which was the first target of Israel's offensive and where entire neighborhoods are pulverized, showed how far Israel remains from achieving its goals of dismantling Hamas and returning scores of hostages captured in the October 7 attack that sparked the war. Gaza's humanitarian crisis is worsening, with 85% of the territory's 2.3 million Palestinians having fled their homes and UN agencies warning of mass starvation and disease. The conflict threatens to widen after the U.S. and Israel traded strikes with Iranian-backed troops groups across the region. Israel has vowed to crush Hamas' military and governing capabilities to ensure that the October 7 attack is never repeated. Militants stormed into Israel from Gaza that day, initiating a fight that left some 1,200 people dead and capturing about 250 people. With strong diplomatic and military support from the United States, Israel has resisted international calls for a ceasefire. Almost half of the hostages were released during a week-long truce in November, but more than 100 remain in captivity. In other developments, Qatar, the Persian Gulf nation that helped mediate the previous ceasefire, said late Tuesday that it brokered a deal between Israel and Hamas to deliver medicine to the hostages as well as additional aid to Palestinians in Gaza. Also on Tuesday, Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, forced a vote in the U.S. Senate on whether to investigate human rights issue abuses in the Israel-Hamas war, a step toward potentially limiting U.S. military aid to Israel as its attacks on Gaza grind past 100 days. Senators overwhelmingly rejected the effort, but the roll call vote revealed deepening unease among U.S. lawmakers over Israel's prosecution of the war against Hamas. In all, 11 senators joined Sanders in the procedural vote, mostly Democrats, while 72 opposed. Gaza's health ministry said Tuesday that the bodies of 158 people killed in Israeli strikes have been brought to hospitals in the past 24 hours. And now an article entitled Jury to Decide Penalty for Trump's Defamation. Separate panel ruled he sexually abused columnist in New York. Donald Trump shook his head in disgust Tuesday as the judge in his New York defamation trial told prospective jurors that another jury already decided that the former president sexually abused columnist E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Fresh from a political win Monday in the Iowa caucuses, the Republican presidential frontrunner detoured to a Manhattan courtroom 
for what amounts to the penalty phase of a civil defamation lawsuit stemming from Carol's claims he sexually attacked her in a department store dressing room. Nine jurors were selected for the trial, which Judge Louis A. Kaplan said is likely to last three to five days. Kaplan told prospective jurors the trial beginning Tuesday would focus only on how much money, if any, Trump must pay Carol for comments he made about her while president in 2019. For purposes of the new trial, it already was determined that Trump did sexually assault Ms. Carroll, Kaplan said. Trump lawyer Alina Haba told the judge Trump plans to testify. Kaplan previously rejected Trump's request to delay the trial a week. And that does it for today's reading of the Globe Gazette for January 17, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. Hello. And welcome to the reading of The Messenger for January 17, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page today, headline article, A Busy Year, Webster County Animal Protection Gives Update to Board of Supervisors. Two years ago, Kayla Benson and her business, Webster County Animal Protection, took over the animal control contract with the city of Fort Dodge and Webster County. In those two years, WCAP has taken more than 5,500 animal calls. So I thought this would be a prime time to kind of review what we do, how we do it, do it, and some of the stuff that we've been working on, Benson told the Webster County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday morning. Animal control is more than just enforcing local and state animal ordinances and catching pooches off their leashes, Benson said. There's a lot of situations that we're involved in that I don't think people pick up on, she said. For example, Webster County Animal Protection assists local law enforcement agencies during search warrants when animals are present and works with the Webster County Attorney's Office to prosecute animal neglect cases. It also often deals with animal hoarding and backyard breeding operations. In 2022, WCAP received 2,474 total calls, 103 of which were county calls and 780 were not assigned to a specific location. In 2023, those numbers went down slightly to 2,154 total calls with 64 county and 627 not assigned. That decrease is attributed to the decision in 2023 that WCAP would no longer handle deer calls. We work with domesticated dogs and cats, and though we've never actually dealt with ferrets, we would if we had to, and it didn't make sense for us to also be hauling and handling these large dead animals, Benson said. Over the last year, Benson and WCAP have handled several animal hoarding and backyard breeding cases in Webster County. While WCAP might have fewer county cases, They tend to be bigger cases, 
Benson said, which means we are pulling resources from anywhere we possibly can, she said. In Harcourt, WCAP was assisted by the Animal Rescue League of Iowa and its Moffat Animal Shelter of Humboldt with seizing 14 dogs from a backyard breeding operation. Puppies were found with at-home crop jobs, surgically cropped ears, hookworms, and whipworms. The Webster County Sheriff's Office also assisted in this seizure, Benson said. In June, 17 puppies were taken from another house and taken to Moffat and Peace Creek Animal Sanctuary, another small animal rescue near Badger. In another situation in Harcourt, dozens of animals were seized by WCAP with assistance from the WCSO and the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. In that case, they seized three Tibetan Mastiffs, ten Great Pyrenees, four Hounds, and more than 100 various birds and one Canada Goose. Canada Geese must be permitted, which is why the DNR was called to assist. So when I tell you that the numbers are far less when it comes to the county, I cannot say they are less work, Benson said. They are probably tenfold the amount of work because what we see in the county is so much larger. WCAP has also taken care of a few emaciated dogs this last year. WCAP is Level 1 certified through the National Animal Control Association and Benson has aggressive dog training certification. WCAP has also done on-site work with the Animal Rescue League in Iowa. We want to be the best, so we decided to work with the best, Benson said. The ARL has assisted us in a few big cases, and we've learned a lot every time the ARL comes down. Another major concern of the WCAP is the feral cat population in the county. According to the ASPCA, American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, feral cats are not considered domesticated animals, Benson said. They are considered wild in the same way that raccoons or possums are, she said. So that does not put them within the scope of what Webster County Animal Protection will handle. Because I am not someone that just lets problems be problems, we did start a nonprofit for trap neuter release. Stay Wild, TNR, meaning trap neuter release, is a new nonprofit started by Benson and WCAP to help contain the feral cat populations in the counties. As the name indicates, feral cats are trapped taken to a veterinarian to be neutered or spayed, and then released back to where they were found. TNR statistics show us is the only beneficial way to work through a feral cat population in any location. The reason this has been chosen is because cats are territorial, Benson said. So we'll go in, we'll vet them, we'll fix them, and then we put them back. This prevents any unfixed cats from moving into an area And then as the seasons go by and the cats die off naturally, what you'll see over time is that population will then extinguish itself. The catch-and-kill method of trapping and humanely euthanizing feral cats is not as effective, she said, 
because once a feral cat colony has been taken out of an area, another colony moves in, starting the problem all over again. Also on the front page today, an article entitled Cabaret will bring Ringland Smeltzer House to life. Stage Door Productions features new talent in upcoming show. Music, local wines and beer, appetizers, friends gathering in elegant surroundings. It's easy to imagine that evenings such as this are exactly what the Ringland Smeltzer House was designed for more than a century ago. Stage Door Productions is bringing another in its series of cabaret shows to the Ringland Smeltzer House January 18th through the 19th. There will be music and laughter, old favorites, and new music fresh from Broadway, according to director Shelley Bothorf. The Ringland Smeltzer House is such a good home base for this show, Bothorf said. It reminds me so much of what people would have been doing in the house decades ago, socializing, listening to music, having parties with friends. Each performance kicks off with a social time beginning at 6.15 p.m., followed by showtime at 7 p.m. It will be a true cabaret atmosphere with refreshments and light hors d'oeuvres included in the $25 ticket price. Local beverage choices will be provided by Shiny Top Brewing and Soldier Creek Winery, along with non-alcoholic offerings. A dozen or more area singers will perform in the intimate confines of the home's first floor. The audience will fill the surrounding area and be quite close to the individual performers. Batorf will accompany the evening's performers on the grand piano that has long been in the home. The piano has been really well maintained. It's one of the reasons we love the house so much. True to the cabaret tradition, the show will include a mix of new music and old favorites. Perhaps the best known will be Trouble from the Music Man, performed by Jeff Halter, and another familiar tune will come from Vicki Reek with her rendition of Beauty and the Beast. Billy Crystal, the man who inspired I'll Have What She's Having from When Harry Met Sally, is hardly a name associated with musical theater. But Crystal is also known for Broadway's Mr. Saturday Night. Jason Laird will be performing A Little Joy from that show. Cameron Nelson will be offering up a little new music from Last One Picket Picked from whoop de doo Baylor Ulrich, a St. Edmund Catholic School student, will perform If Only You Would Listen from School of Rock, and you can bet the audience will be listening to every word from this young singer. Other local singers set to perform include Dennis Morgan, Laura Kleinferry, Mary Alvis, Reese Peterson, and many more. For Bothorf, much of the fun of the cabaret shows is finding new performers and matching them to the right songs. She rehearses one-on-one -on -one with each of the performers, the rehearsal schedule is quite flexible and is based on how much or how little each performer needs for any given song. Finding the right mix of music for each show is something Bottorf enjoys. I look at the tempo of the songs and I try to think about how the mood can fluctuate, Bottorf said. 
It's all about the entertainment factor when I choose the songs. I want them to have an interesting story, and I want them to be right for each person. Sometimes we work on a song for several weeks and then say we need to switch it out because it doesn't fit that performer. The goal is a mix of music that will not only entertain, but also broaden the musical experience for the audience. We always do a couple of songs that people haven't heard before, and then we do some that are nostalgic for most people, she said. I look for a variety of pieces that will work well together and make it a great evening. Steve Kirsten will serve as Master of Ceremonies for the show, offering a little history on the Ringland Smeltzer House, and then talking a bit about each performer as they come on throughout the evening. The show is meant for mature audiences and designed to be a wonderful date night for couples or a fun night out for a group of friends. We do some material that's not necessarily G-rated, but that's what I love about this show, Bottorf said. There's nothing vulgar at all, just maybe a few swear words and mature content. The cabaret show is the perfect outlet for including music from shows that otherwise would not get much local attention. Here, local audiences can get a taste of the music and then perhaps see the full show at a metropolitan venue. Although Fort Dodge has a ton of theater and our area has a ton of theater, there are some shows that would not work in our community, but they have beautiful songs. So this is a fun way to kind of educate the community and let them hear some of the new material, Batorf said. There are so many musicals out there, and this is a chance to let people hear some of the music being produced. Batorf lives to encourage people in the arts. While this show is set, she is always looking for talent for future cabaret shows. No experience required, just a desire to perform and to grow in one's musical passion. She said most of the performers have not necessarily done any local theater in the past. If there are people that would like to be considered for an upcoming show, I would love for them to reach out to me, Bottorf said. Stage Door Productions and the Cabaret Show are always looking for new talent and new volunteers. See the email and web contacts with the ticket information to learn more. Tickets for the Cabaret Show are available at Shiny Top Brewing or by emailing fdfinearts at gmail.com. Tickets may also be available at the door, but because of very limited seating, guests are encouraged to get their tickets early. And finally, on the front page, an article entitled, Lawmakers Aim to Restrict Release of Jail Booking Photos. Legislation that might prevent the immediate release of most jail booking photos in Iowa received preliminary approval by a House subcommittee on Tuesday. House Study Bill 531 would allow county jails to withhold the photos they possess of people who are arrested until those people are convicted, with some exceptions. There are plenty of examples of people whose photos have been published all over, maligned on Facebook or wherever else, only to be found innocent, said Representative Bill Gustav, 
a Des Moines Republican who led the subcommittee. And yeah, I know people who have had to live with the consequences of that, who were found not to have done anything wrong in the first place. The proposed legislation has exceptions for when a photo depicts a fugitive or if the person poses an imminent threat to public safety and if a judge orders the release of a photo. But groups that represent the state's attorneys and law enforcement said the photos are of public interest and that even if they are withheld, the details of the arrests might still be publicly available in text. All this is doing is removing a picture, said Doug Strike of the Iowa State Bar Association. That seems like a tremendous half measure that doesn't appear to go towards one of the major stated causes. Catherine Lucas, an attorney for the Iowa Department of Public Safety, which oversees the Iowa State Patrol and the Division of Criminal Investigation, said the photos are important to help residents correctly identify who has been accused of a crime. We think there's a public safety interest in these photos, especially in an age where multiple people have the same name, Lucas said. Representative Jerome Amos Jr., a Waterloo Democrat on the three-person subcommittee, questioned what prompted the bill, but said he knew of people in the same situation and agreed to recommend it for consideration by the House's full public safety committee. Amos and Gustav did not provide specific examples of innocent people whose reputations were impugned by the release of their jail booking photos during the subcommittee meeting. If the bill comes after the arrest of an Iowa senator during the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride last year, the bill comes after the arrest of an Iowa senator during the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa last year, Senator Adrian Dickey, a Republican from Packwood, was charged with interference with official acts for allegedly refusing a deputy sheriff's request to move off a roadway during the ride in Sac County in July. The county attorney dismissed the charge several months later because there is not enough evidence to prove this matter beyond a reasonable doubt, court records show. The arrest was widely reported, but many news organizations published Dickey's official Senate photo rather than his booking photo, according to an Iowa Capital Dispatch review of the articles. However, the booking photo accompanies at least two news articles that are still available online. Dickey did not immediately respond to a request to comment for this article. He insisted from the start that he was innocent. Most Iowa counties produce the jail photos upon request, but Polk County, for example, posts them online with a disclaimer that says, record of an arrest is not an indication of guilt. Lisa Davis-Cook of the Iowa Association for Justice said the publication of jail booking photos can have long-lasting repercussions for those who are not ultimately convicted of the crimes for which they were arrested. Their mugshots are put up all over the Internet, and they're never charged beyond that, Davis-Cook said. They never go to trial. The charges are dismissed, and that is still out there for employers or potential employers to see. For people they want to rent a home from, 
any number of things, the parents of their kids at school. It's unclear when the bill might be considered by a full committee of legislators. And now we move on to page three, an article entitled Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, oldest member of Senate, hospitalized with infection. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, the oldest member of the U.S. Senate, has been hospitalized in the Washington area with an infection and is receiving antibiotic infusions, his office said Tuesday. Grassley, 90, will return to work as soon as possible following doctor's orders, his office said in a statement, and he is in good spirits. The statement did not give any additional details about his condition. The Iowa Republican had hip surgery last year and briefly used a scooter to get around, but the eight-term senator, who was long known for his daily early morning runs, has appeared otherwise healthy in the halls of Congress, even as he became the Senate's only nonagenarian in September. Grassley, currently the top Republican on the Senate Budget Committee, was first elected to the Senate in 1980. As the senior-most Republican, he was the president pro tem of the Senate until 2021, when Democrats assumed control. The president pro tem presides over the chamber, opens proceedings every day, and is third in the line of presidential succession. Grassley's political career began in 1956 when he was elected to the state legislature at age 23. He served 18 years at the State House before being elected to the U.S. House in 1974. He became the oldest senator last fall after the death of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. She was three months his senior. In local news, we have an article entitled Area Musicians Honored at Jazz Festival. The St. Edmund High School Jazz Band, along with multiple musicians from area schools, took home honors during the 11th annual Triton Jazz Festival held last week. Despite the weather making this a challenging week for not just schools, but also the clinicians and adjudicators we planned to bring in, it was so rewarding to hear the students performing and seeing them enjoy a fun learning environment, said Jeremy Smith, Director of Athletic Bands at Iowa Central Community College. It shows how resilient our youth are to be able to perform at a high level, some without even meeting as a full group prior to attending, he said. The 11th Annual Triton Jazz Festival was held January 10 through 11 at the Best Western Starlight Village Inn and Suites. Area honorees at the festival were St. Edmund High School Jazz Band, first place in Class 1A, Emily Mosier and Kara McGonigal, St. Edmund Class 1A Soloist Awards, Belmont Clemmy High School Jazz Band, first place in Class 2A, Creighton Urban and Aiden Anderson, Southeast Valley High School Class 2A Soloist Awards. William Lawson and Julia Anderson, Pocahontas Area High School Class 2A Soloist Awards. Callum Cipher, Clementine Cipher, Will Hinman, and Lillianne Aguilera, Belmont Clemmy High School Class 2A Soloist Awards. Aiden Hill, Val Wagner, 
Julia Bennett Ellis and Fiona Brown, South Hamilton, Class 2A, Soloist Awards. Ella Neuherner and Mason Anderson, Manson Northwest Webster, Class 2A, Soloist Awards. Turner Hansen, Jordan Call, and Kira Ludolf, Humboldt High School, Class 3A, Soloist Awards. Shailen McKee, Webster City High School, Class 3A, Soloist Award. In a little news brief, we have an article entitled, Top Federal Reserve Official Says Inflation Fight Seems Nearly Won, Rate Cuts Coming. A top Federal Reserve official said Tuesday he is increasingly confident that the inflation that inflation will continue following this year back to the Fed's 2% target level after two years of accelerating price spikes that hurt millions of American households. The official, Christopher Waller, an influential member of the Fed's Board of Governors, noted that inflation is slowing even as growth and hiring remain solid, a combination that he called almost as good as it gets. Waller's remarks follow recent comments from other senior Fed officials that suggest that the central bank remains on track to begin cutting its benchmark short-term interest rate likely by mid-year. In the sports world, we have an article headlined, Ayala ranked number one in nation. Ex-Dodger champ is now top-ranked 125-pounder for the Hawkeyes. A seventh victory over a ranked opponent already this season elevated Iowa's Drake Ayala to new heights on Tuesday. The three-time Fort Dodge state champion is the nation's new number one wrestler at 125 pounds, according to the Intermat publication. Ayala, a Hawkeye redshirt sophomore, has only lost once to date in 2023-24. Ayala defeated two-time NCAA All-American Patrick McKee of Minnesota on Monday inside Carver Hawkeye Arena 8-5. It was Ayala's second win over McKee in the last month. This is a quality opponent, and we don't go to sleep on him, Iowa head coach Tom Brand said. Drake Ayala doesn't go to sleep. He put himself back in that match after giving up that first takedown. He didn't let the clock tick down, and then there is a mad panic crisis flurry, scramble at the end. He put himself right back in the match. Ayala was up 5-3 to three late before scoring a takedown to extend his advantage and ultimately close out McKee. Ayala lost to McKee twice as a true freshman in 2021-22. I just wanted to set the tone early, Ayala said after Iowa defeated the Gophers 22-9. The goal is to keep doing my job each and every time out there. Ayala is now 11-1 this year and 35-10 in his career with the Hawkeyes. The 2021 Fort Dodge senior high graduate, also of Nebraska, last Friday topped number seven, Caleb Smith, seven and three. And that's not right. The 2021 Fort Dodge senior high graduate also topped number seven, Caleb Smith of Nebraska, last Friday, seven to three. This sets up a huge matchup for Ayala at home this Friday. 
Purdue comes to Iowa, and Boilermaker Matt Ramos is ranked second at 125 with a 15-3 and record this season. Ramos, a junior, was a national runner-up a year ago after stunning three-time Hawkeye national champion Spencer Lee in the semifinals. There are four other potential top 20 matchups left on the docket for Ayala at 125 before the postseason with number 5 Michael D'Agostino of Michigan, 14th-ranked Braden Davis of Penn State, 4th-ranked Eric Barnett of Wisconsin, and number 19, Troy Spratley of Oklahoma State, potentially still to come. <laughs> 